watching the show. Mindy was 13 when her mother floated up. She had never been a gregarious child, and her maternal predicament had made sustaining friendships even harder. So much of a child's social calendar is created by reciprocal invitation, and Mindy's mother's long illness had made hosting playdates, birthday parties, and sleepovers impossible. Her mother's death further ostracized Mindy. Fellow students were sympathetic to her plight. There goes poor Mindy, was a refrain she often heard whispered behind her in the school corridors. However, no one actively attempted to engage the glum, sallow teenager in a meaningful relationship. For her part, Mindy felt neither able to experience nor to understand the carefree hysteria enjoyed by her contemporaries. She was still happiest in ballet school, lost in the individual complexities of new moves that her growing body struggled to master. It was here Mindy developed her plan. Too young to either consider or fear failure, she would graduate from high school, move to New York City, and become a professional dancer. She had no doubt she would land a job in a Broadway show. Other possibilities never occurred to her, like ending up a murder victim, a drug addict, or, even worse, one of those people who bounce around on street corners wearing a giant hand pointing to the new condominiums. And so it was, a few years further on, that 17-year-old Mindy stood in the foyer of her Florida home, framed by the mid-price luggage she had requested as her high school graduation present, waiting for a dented taxi with questionable suspension to shake her to the airport. It was the summer of 1980. Ronald Reagan was running for president, Elizabeth Taylor was in rehab, and Sting had hair. Nobody was on the Internet, the ozone layer was thicker, and the Spice Girls were not yet potty trained. It was not an innocent time, but as with any year, it was more innocent than the times that would follow. Why are you going to New York? What have I done? Is it Smilla? her father asked, as beads of sweat serpentined guiltily down his forehead. Dad, it's not you. It's not even Smilla. Actually, it was partly Smilla. A mere year after Mindy's mother had died, her father had married a Swedish masseuse. Hal Solomon, possessing no psychological means by which to deal with his wife's tragic passing, had thought the best course of action for both his motherless child and himself was quite simply to replace one wife with another as swiftly as possible. Smilla had not been difficult to find, Mindy had noticed bitterly, since Jewish widowers in Florida get snapped up faster than free samples of mouthwash at a garlic convention. Smilla possessed cheekbones that could slice salami and toes the length of fingers. Mindy marveled how at six feet two inches Smilla could dust the tops of things that average-sized women didn't even know were dusty. Mindy did not begrudge her father whatever happiness he could find. She realized how much he deserved a new life. However, his plan had backfired. Rather than providing Mindy with a replacement mother, his marriage caused Mindy to feel even more disconnected. When Mindy was 16, her father and Smilla unexpectedly produced a baby daughter who had a name that no one could pronounce. And now the three of them were a new family unit. Mindy felt it was time for her, part of her father's old life that had ended badly, to vacate the building. I have to go. There's nothing for me to do here, explained Mindy. You could go to college. That's why Grandpa left you that money. That's not what he said to me before he died. What did he say? He asked me if he was in Canada. He was senile. I know he wanted you to go to college. 
He wanted you to get a teaching degree so you'd have something to fall back on. Well, all he said to me was that he felt there was a possibility he might be in Canada. I took it to mean, go to New York, be a dancer, and once in a while, face north. It was a family trait to be glib in serious situations. Mindy remembered her mother, bald from chemotherapy, referring to her wig as a fur coat for her head. And in those final weeks when Rose was too weak to watch television or to read, she had still managed to teach the family parrot Rover to moo. Years later, when asked to supply her religious upbringing, Mindy often told people she was glibbish. The driver honked outside. Mindy hugged her dad tightly and her stepmother loosely. The baby, Vendetta, or whatever it was called, cried in the background. Mindy took one last look at the living room. There was the expensive covered candy dish she had knocked over when she was three that became an ashtray in a house where nobody smoked.